really got to try on that left-hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome once again to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show that brings you news, reviews, great interviews, and so much more all about the world of rugby. As always, I am your host. My name is David Lawrence. I'm an American rugby fan who follows the game wherever I can find it all over the globe. If you would like to get in touch, well, you know what? I would absolutely love to hear from you. I'm easy to find on all your socials. You can always just drop me an email at the scrum of the earth at gmail.com as well. So there was a surprisingly full slate of rugby this week. So, so, so why don't we get this thing started? So as always, we start with our current updates. Just That's just a little insight into what's happening in my own life. Uh, and of, of course, my son just started second grade after a long and <laughs> lazy summer. Um, he's already enjoying himself, so that's great. Um, he, he doesn't want to get up on time, but I can hardly blame him. I mean, like that's a struggle I have literally had every single day of my life. So just today, he got issued his Chromebook, a development he is extremely happy about. So I was just talking to my partner about this. We were saying how funny it is that like when we were little, all you ever heard was, don't watch TV. Stop looking at those screens. That's going to rot your brain. That game will give you a seizure. Everything about screens is, is screens is incredibly toxic. No exceptions. And yet now they're like, what? You're in second grade? Oh, here, stare at this screen. I know, I know it's not exactly apples to apples, but it just it just still strikes me as odd. Like, I, I'm well aware that it's me that needs to adjust my expectations, not the schools, but I just still, I don't know, comes across to me as like surreal, I guess. Ironically, I watched a ton of TV as a kid and I played video games to the extent through my whole life that I, I literally have called in sick to work two days in a row just to continue an RPG that I was working on that I was like really into. So despite that, I still find myself echoing all the paranoid warnings of my childhood. So if nothing else, I guess I have definitely found a work on for myself this year. Well, Isa, I guess I'd say it's borderline silly news this week. So there's been some fuss about the, the squad that the Springboks recently named against New Zealand. Predictably, the backlash has been, I guess the way to put it is vocal. So quoting here, quote, former Scotland head coach Matt Williams has called for world rugby to intervene in how teams can use their benches with specific regard to the number of forwards and backs named. The complaint comes after the Springboks fielded a bench against the All Blacks, almost entirely consisting of forwards with a 7-1 split with Kobus Reinach as the only backline player. The original plan was for the world champions to have a 6-2 split on their bench, but a late withdrawal from Willie LaRue saw the South Africans risk it with a very rare 7-1 split. The risk in using such a forward-dominated bench lies in potential catastrophe if there is more than one injury within the starting backline. 
this was not the case against New Zealand as the team maximized the reward of the tactic by having the ability to almost completely change their forward pack in the second period. As of now, there is no restriction regarding how teams must split forwards and backs on their benches with the box triumph at the 2019 Rugby World Cup being powered by the 6-2 split, which was less common at that stage. Now more teams such as France, Scotland, Australia, and even New Zealand have deployed the tactic this year. However, Williams feels world rugby needs to step in to provide restrictions to prevent teams from doing this. Quote, the South Africans are just abusing the bench at the moment, Williams told OTB Monday Night uh, Rugby Podcast. The bench came in all for safety reasons. People don't come in, uh, come on for positions they weren't trained for, so we weren't putting back rowers in the front row. Everything was done for a reason. They had seven forwards against New Zealand. Seven forwards. Really? Seriously? And world rugby just has got to act on this. The way you fix it is you say you must have three recognized backs on your bench, and that stops it. Unquote. So I certainly, you know, I think I even mentioned here, it was, I noticed it was a little odd at the time, but I did not expect the the whole, this isn't the spirit of the game type backlash stuff. I mean, I, I have to admit, as a Patriots fan, I feel compelled to say, if they don't like it, they can make a rule against it. Until then, my friends, it's play on. So moving on to our thoughts of the week, and my thoughts this week are all, of course, on the upcoming Men's World Cup. I found an interesting sort of breakdown of what we can expect from our top nations. By the way, Craig Manson from the Scottish Rugby Podcast and I did a lovely preview pod just last week. I highly recommend you check it out. It was so much fun. He's always great. So anyway, quoting here from The Independent, quote, Ireland, France, South Africa, and New Zealand shape as the tournament favorites, but how far down our rankings are England and Wales after a difficult 2023 so far? The Rugby World Cup is almost upon us, with the 20 competing teams descending on France ahead of the start of the tournament. On the final weekend of a busy month of warm-up action, France and South Africa showcased their credentials as contenders with thrashings of Australia and New Zealand, respectively. But England sunk further into the mire with a first-ever defeat to Fiji. It was so good. A lopsided draw sees the world's top five nations in the men's rankings are all in one half of the draw opening up a route to the semifinals for two sides from Pool C and Pool D. And with a number of nations outside of the traditional rugby powers developing quickly, it could yet be the most unpredictable and exciting tournament yet. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's got to be, right? So here, the independent assesses how every nation, well, they do 15, uh, stacks up ahead of the Rugby World Cup Tier 1, the true contenders number one, France. There's reasonably little to choose between the top four sides in the world, but France, as hosts, just about get the nod as favorites. The Stade de France was po uh, positively bouncing for the warm-up win against Australia, and that sort of atmosphere could carry Fabien Galtier's side through the tournament. Romain Entomac's injury is obviously a blow, but there's no drop-off in the no drop-off in the talent with Matthew Jalibert installed as the starting fly half, and there are few holes in this fabulous French sides team. Uh, game rather. Number two, South Africa, the defending champions look to be in ominous form. There's real stylistic clarity evident in Jacques Niedebar's side, particularly with Sia Khaleesi back fit, while Mani Lebac is setting, uh, settling in nicely at 10 to add extra attacking potential to the back line. Fatigue 
could be yet an issue. The Springboks players have been juggling Northern Hemisphere club schedules with a Northern Hemisphere international involvement uh, for the last couple of years. But Nina Barr has plenty of depth in his 33. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, my God. So, number three, Ireland. Top of the rankings and unbeaten for more than a year. Ireland are genuine contenders for the first time. Uh, Consistency-wide, their structured attack and defense are probably the best in the world, though Johnny Sexton will have to get back up to speed after his ban. Uh, Ring Rust, I think Gary Ring Rust is one of the players, by the way, uh, doesn't tend to bother the fly half. Andy Farrell's side have answered pretty much every question posed to them in the last couple of years. Can they become the first Ireland men's side to reach the World Cup Final Four? Well, if you listen to me talking to Bernard Jackman like a year ago, you'll know the answer is definitely. So, number four, New Zealand. The All Blacks have progressed uh, progressed significantly in the last 12 months, but the Twickenham defeat to South Africa showed some old flaws up front with a couple of key personnel missing. The air of invincibility that New Zealand used to carry is gone, though a multifarious backline has plenty in the toolbox and the tight five is vastly improved under Jason Ryan's tutelage. So tier two, they list, <laughs> they call it the best of the rest. And by the way, even though the name of the tier is called the best of the rest, there's one team in it. <laughs> it's Scotland at number five, a slightly sluggish showing against Georgia, but Scotland remaining good fettle in the other half of the draw. They'd be close to semifinal bankers, but escaping pool B will be tough for Gregory Townsend's team. Can they put together a complete performance together against either Ireland or South Africa? Oh man, I can't. So tier three, more questions than answers, they call it. Number six, Argentina. Argentina are chugging along under the radar, which will probably suit Michael Cheka just fine. A frankly brutish group of back five forwards and pace to burn out wide. Though the Pumas scrum is more wobbly than usual, Santiago Carreras may be key. The frisky fly half is still a work in progress, but needs to find consistency. Number seven, Australia. Wow. Five defeats from five to start Eddie Jones' second stint in charge, but there were signs of promise against New Zealand and France. A developing power game built around Angus Bell, Taniela Tupo, uh, Will Skelton, and Semu Karevi, among others, could take the Wallabies deep, though inexperienced at fly half and elsewhere is a major concern. Number eight, Fiji. Rugby's great entertainers enter this tournament better prepared than ever before. The Fijian Indrua contingent gives Simon Rawalui's uh, side a, a backbone and cohesion. And the development of a couple of props has shored up the scrum. Caleb Munts produced a composed showing with the boot in the Twickenham win. If he can facilitate the unleashing of Fiji's strike runners, then a deep tournament run is a possibility. <laughs> Number nine. England, a disastrous month of warm-up action for Steve Borthwick as issues with injury and discipline add to a general air of malaise around French, uh, English rugby. Imagine the English rugby having the malaise. <laughs> it is a long while since the 2019 runners-up played to potential, but there is surely too much talent and experience within Borthwick's squad to make a pool stage exit. I mean, this is just what me and Craig talked about. You got to listen. So that said, a subsequent meeting with one of the world's top five nations is surely the limit of their ambitions. And number 10, Wales. Signs of life for Wales with a couple of bright young things coming through to complement the remaining familiar faces. But Warren Gatland may still be fearful 
about the composition of a squad short on top class talent. Gatlin has backed youth in key areas in the hope of a, 21, a 2011 style blossoming. The opening pool fixture against Fiji is really crucial. I mean, I feel like I should just say that phrase. The opening match against Fiji is crucial. Like seven more times and we can just probably end the podcast because that's pretty much all you need to know. So tier four, they're calling, could cause a shock. Number 11, Samoa. Perhaps no side has been more improved by the changes to World Rugby's eligibility rules than Samoa with Stephen Luatua and Limo Sapuanga, among others, adding class and calm. The Pacific Islanders are well coached by Silala Mapasua and have quietly assembled one of the more complete squads in the tournament. If they can gel fully and avoid injuries to a few key individuals, don't rule out Samoa earning a last eight piece. Number 12, Italy. This Italian team is undoubtedly headed in the right direction, but this tournament may come too soon for a statement of performance for the Azuri with both France and New Zealand in their pool. The bulk of the squad will be in their prime in four years time when Italy will hope to have more six nations success behind them. Number 13, Georgia, a side traditionally built around a power packed group of forwards has more to it than past iterations. Definitely. Uh, David Niashvili is a mustachioed menace. They say from, from fullback while other 26 or younger younger players ensure plenty of creativity in the halves, the win in Cardiff and besting of Italy last year have raised Georgian hopes of progressing out of their World Cup pool for the first time, but you fear that Australia, Fiji, and Wales all have just a little bit too much for Los Lelos when at full strength number 14, Japan, Japan, appear a team in transition. That's a nice way to put it. As the end of Jamie Joseph's highly successful time in charge nears a squad that so impressed four years ago on home soil has struggled to regenerate after stalling during COVID and fitness issues in the back five of the pack are a concern. Still capable on their day with their attacking invention, but it's tough to see the 2019 quarterfinalists repeating that achievement and 15. Tonga, questions at fly half and in the front row will concern coach uh Tautai kefu in such a tough pool george moala's ban is a shame too though piki aki malake feketoa and charles Piatau still provide backline quality with so much focus on south africa scotland and ireland's battles with one another tonga could catch one of the trio off guard but the extended time between uh, fixtures means they are unlikely to have heavily rotated opposition to get after unquote. So I know, I know, I, I know all of these various previews and like look aheads, all this stuff. It, it gets a bit tiresome because it's been piling on for like two weeks now. But if, if I'm honest, you know what? I can't get enough. As Barney famously said on The Simpsons, just hook it to my veins. Okay, my friends, that brings us to our reviews as always. And you know what? We're going to start, of course, with the FPC semifinals. By the way, this was the week that I learned I've been calling it the Farah Palmer Cup, and apparently it's the Farah Palmer Cup. I mean, it's just got the one R. It's not my fault. Anyway, I'm constantly learning these things. And anytime you reach out and, you know, let me know, it helps. So that meant two matches in the Premiership Division with another two in the Championship Division Friday night. 
brought us the two versus three matchup for the Prem. It was Waikato women taking on Auckland. And over the course of this season, there's been almost nothing separating these two teams. On paper, they're uncannily matched. Uh, since we're getting down to the nitty-gritty, I thought I would actually map out my my little predictions here. So just for the record, I went in reverse order. So I came up with the Canterbury women beating Hawks Bay 24 to 10. Uh, I had Northland narrowly edging out Otago women um, 18 to 15. A third home win, my Manawatu Cyclones, I saw giving it to the Tasman pretty good 32 to 12. At that point, I realized that would mean no upsets if Friday Friday night's game wasn't one. So come on, no playoff weekend is ever complete without at least one upset, right? So I penciled in 21 to 24 for this one, and we were off and running. So clearly intent on making me look stupid. Waikato, they scored the first try just three minutes in. They nabbed another before 10 minutes had gone by. Of course, if you recall, Auckland upset Waikato last year in this exact same scenario, 26 to 21, if memory serves. So there could have been factors outside of making me look stupid at play. I mean, theoretically. <laughs> so this one turned into a close one with the teams tied at 12 around the half hour mark. Auckland showed some amazing sparked claw ahead. We had a 15 to 22 tally at the break. Entering the final five minutes, Auckland, they were up seven points. It was tough. Waikato on a promising drive. I mean, they were doing so well, but they were forced to play from just so far out. I mean, it was un unsustainable. It was Waikato going down at home, 22 to 29. I didn't get the score right, but I did get the Auckland upset. It was a hell of a game. Seriously, do yourself a favor and watch at least the last 20 minutes. Like it was an instant classic Auckland is moving on to the finals. Next up, it was the Manawatu Cyclones hosting the Tasman women. They got a great shot of the trophy that these two teams had on the line at the beginning of this match. But you know what? Nobody on comms mentioned it. So I have no idea what it's called or its significance or anything else. They tease me with these things and they don't give them to me. Lasai. So side note, uh, they mentioned uh, Celica Waniata, who we highlighted here two weeks ago. And I have to say, I felt a little hoodwinked because I had reported exactly what I read, which was that she had been earning her 100th cap that week. But this week they said, well, that was her 100th first class cap, but tonight is her 100th cap in the FPC. Okay, fine. Uh, by the way, also surprising was them referring to her as Twinkle Toes, but I guess we're going with it. So the home team, they scored first and pretty quickly and already had their second try before minute number 12 while Tasman were pretty much trapped in their own territory the whole time the visitors found a penalty kick maybe halfway through the opening round but th that was all and at the break it was a big 33 to 3 lead it wasn't until the final quarter of play that Tasman got their first try and this one was already long over by the way as the sun went down man it cast a gorgeous golden glow over the whole area with a beautiful shot of the mountains sort of dotted with snow white turbines and gently swaying palm trees. Palmerston North sure looks like a lovely place at twilight. Just saying. Either way, the Cyclones must have heard my little 32 to 12 prediction and thought, okay, pal, hold my beer because the actual final score would dwarf it a massive 71 to 10 
to stamp their ticket to the championship final. And whoever wins between Northland and Otago, you know what? Speaking of which, on Saturday, we did, in fact, have the Northland women versus Otago. And, I mean, talk about a family atmosphere. Man, oh, man, it, it, it just looked like a perfect day in every way. A nice crowd on hand. They really let the players know it, too. It was a top-notch spectacle anyway you sliced it. The home team, though, they, they came out with a ton of energy and scored two tries in short order. It began to look like it might be a runaway, but Otago, they answered back, and in the intensity, I don't know, it just seemed to ratchet up after that. Both teams absolutely exhausting themselves on the defensive side of the ball. The Northland women looked in command by the break, leading 19-5. to It wasn't until late on that Otago looked threatening. It did get pretty exciting there with the visitors, you know, appearing on the verge of a comeback before another turnover. Put it out of reach, a respectable final scoreline, but... A disappointing day for the Otago women. Northland have booked their trip to the final to face a red-hot Manawatu Cyclones team. It was 29-19 to in Fangodai. Um, the Canterbury women faced Hawks Bay Tui. This was our final match of the weekend. I only caught the very end, I'm afraid to say. Um, it looked like it went pretty poorly for the Tui. I, I'd expected a close one, but this one... Uh, it seems like it was never in doubt. From what I saw, Canterbury just looked superior in every phase of the game. By the time the double whistle blew, it was a big 59-29 to victory for the home side. And we have our finalists set to go. Amazingly, that made me 4-0 on my predictions for the semis. Not bad, right? So anyway, just to tie a bit of a bow on it, because I think we're going to not have a lot of extra time to sort of look back over the next couple of months and talk about it. Um, but it was another great year for the FPC. The Prem Division all playing six games, the Championship Division playing five apiece. In the top group, Canterbury and Waikato both went five and one. In the lower tier, we of course had the undefeated Manawatu Cyclones. In the upper tier, I mean, for now, Wellington went a painful 0-6, while North Harbor... <laughs> I say oh, for now because they're obviously getting relegated. Well, North Harbor joined them in the goose egg department. So the Taranaki women and the Bay of Plenty Volcanics both just got a single win with the remaining teams all fairly evenly matched. Um, if you're not looking forward to these grand finals this weekend, I mean, well, you should be. I, I understand. There's also a larger event kicking off in France. But do yourself a favor. Find the time to watch. Or if not, at least... Check out the brilliant highlight videos they put together every single week on their uh, week on their official website. It's so good. It's such a great competition. I'm going to miss it after this weekend. That's for sure. Okay, that brings us over to the National Provincial Championship. And for our Storm Week fixture, we had Manawatu traveling to Auckland to try to get their second win in like 22 months. But it was not going to be easy. With short rest on both sides of this fixture, Mike Rogers completely flipped the roster to try and sort of obviously keep his charges as fresh as possible, which meant, in this case, Andrew Quatron got his first start along with John Poland, while Terrell Paita, ironically on loan from Auckland, also joined the ranks of the Turbo Jacks. Of course, the hosts were looking to propel themselves into the comp's top three, while the one-win visitors hadn't won a game against Auckland in... Wait for it. 42 years. Oh, anyway, 
as predicted here just recently, Manawatu, they have begun to turn a corner. And even with a bit of a ragtag band on hand today, they really kept in this one down just five as we entered the final 10 minutes. And then, oh, my friends, what an ending. Julian Gurkha, he smashed one down just before the sound of the hooter right between the posts and Armstrong who had been golden off the tee all night, casually slotted the extras to give the visiting turbos a 31-33 to victory. Their first over Auckland since 1981, and their first win at Eden Park since 1980. A mind-boggling result. That's two in a row. And Manawatu look, look to have righted the ship at long last. What a story. What a team. So... Uh, Northland versus Hawks Bay was our early Friday fixture, and as the Magpies scrum crumbled before the Northland pack, I was all ready to, to make a, a little snarky comment along the lines of, well, that's what happens when you leave Joel Hintz out of the lineup. And then I realized Joel Hintz was definitely in the starting lineup. Yeah. Anyway, Hawks Bay almost have a habit now, falling behind early, then stealing it at the death. And today, uh, they would be good for the first part of that proposition, finding themselves behind 24 to 14 at the break. They showed a stat on screen. Hawks Bay had won just one of their previous road games when trailing by 10 points or more at halftime. It almost felt like the Tanifa knew it. Sure enough, no miracle comeback this time. The home team looking incredibly good, despite a very meh record on the year. They would come away victors 44 to 21 by the end. The Magpie magic is at an end just for this week. So Canterbury versus Taranaki was up next. Canterbury had apparently decided to take their first home game away from Christchurch. I mean, it sounded like ever in their history and instead decided to play at the uh, Rangiora showgrounds where they said, quote, community groups, sports clubs, agricultural businesses, and families, unquote, have used the facility for decades. And yeah, it was not your typical rugby venue. Uh, first impressions made me think that the entire place was standing room only. Um, to be fair, I, I did discover that there's at least one set of stands there, but either way, definitely not what you'd expect. So, I mean, I have to say, I really appreciate that. And by the way, if you Google the actual name of the venue, the first picks you will see are from classic car shows. So definitely a fixture off the beaten path. I wondered for whom, if anyone, this would prove an advantage. So it took all of two minutes for Jason Potras to slot the first points of the evening. Soon after, they showed a great stat that the Bulls this year had had 44 scrums and had won. 43 of them, wow, around the quarter hour mark. Some handbags got close to becoming a bit more than that, with Joe Moody definitely looking like he actually threw a punch. And as the sides came together to, you know, aggressively practice smiling, Jesse the Pest, he looked like a kid on Christmas. He was like, oh, are we throwing down? This is my jam. Uh, the ref, of course, could not have cared less. Then we had another installment of the segment I've enjoyed so much. It was Alex Harford this time scoring and causing them to put up the graphic reading. Alex Harford tries today. One 2023 one career one <laughs> that never ceases. I don't know to tickle me. I, maybe I'm just an idiot. In fact, 
I mean, yeah. Anywho, it was 17 to 11 at the break. Canterbury looking increasingly confident. Billy Ketchup came in as the lead grew 22 to 11 just after 50 minutes. And uh, it looked grim for the visitors. They clawed their way back and only lost by a single point. It was so close. It was 29 to 28 by the end of this one. Such a good match. So after that, it was Bay of Plenty versus Otago. It was the first NPC match at the Rotorua International Stadium in two years, as apparently they've been making some upgrades and resurfacing the pitch, among other things. The venue and the day, I mean, they both looked great to me. Um, There was a nice crowd on hand to witness the proceedings. The Steamers scored first and frequently, and it was really, really bad for Otago. Just before, okay, you might have already seen this, it was abominable. Just before a quarter hour gone by, the Bay of Plenty fullback broke away. The Otago defender just kind of put his head down and gave up the chase entirely. Meanwhile, the fullback pulled his hamstring and had to painfully stagger over the line. If the Otago player hadn't given up, he easily would have caught him and saved a try. But as it was, it was a 21 to nil lead really 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 bad for otago you you just you can't do that it was 28 to 7 at the break otago naturally made a bit of a run but the last 10 or 12 minutes was all steamers despite the brilliant natoya akoy being in the bin bay of plenty still cruised to an easy win 38 to 14 in rotorua side note if you're not already a fan of akoy just Google his post-match interview from last year. He's unbearably charming and funny on top of being preposterously good. And on top of all that, by the way, he mentioned that pregame, he was listening to Stevie Nicks. That's right, which instantly catapulted him to legendary status for me. On Saturday, it was winless North Harbor versus Waikato. It was such a nice day out that the comms called the conditions, quote, a glamour day. Quote, I mean, that was a new one on me, and I'm absolutely stealing it. So Waikato hadn't lost North Harbor since 2019, a lifetime ago in so many ways. It was an odd game, tied at five after the first quarter and somehow 24 to five at the break. The hosts looking to get into the win column at long last. I don't know what's wrong with Waikato right now. They just, I mean, they haven't been the same since winning the title a couple of years ago. This season has been particularly perplexing. They just never really got a foothold in this one. Anyway, North Harbor. They came away looking like a top side, despite it being their first win of the year. 39-17 to 17 by the end. And then Wellington versus Mo- uh, Counties Monaco and Southland versus Auckland. I missed both of these. It's a weird thing, okay, with holiday weekends. You technically have a full extra day, right, to cap- catch up on all the action, but people always plan stuff, so you end up having less time than normal. Obviously, not complaining about getting a much-needed holiday, but it does seem odd how these weekends always end up feeling shorter, right? Anyway, uh, Wellington, they went on to, to obliterate counties 56-27, woof! And then the winless stags of Southland remained that way, going down big at home 13-41. to Not a good year for them. So on Sunday, on just four days rest, Manawatu were again on the road, this time to face the Tasman Mako. A very tough uh, tough couple of weeks indeed. Uh, plenty of changes in the lineup since Wednesday. 
Still, some great representation from the Free Jacks, with Slade and Walks each getting another start, with Cole Keith, Terrell Paita, and John Poland in the reserves. The venue reminded me a bit of the sports ground in Galway, with sort of wind and seagulls just surrounding the affair, though in, in this case, no relentless rain. So, I'm going to say, a bit of frustration for me at the start. The Manawatu hooker absolutely got his bell rung, and when he tried to stand back up, he literally fell forward onto his face. The officials didn't see fit to stop the action. It was, it was, it was pretty gross. Come on, New Zealand, you need to do better in this department. The world is really starting to take notice. It's not good. It was an embarrassment right then. They did eventually take him off when play stopped just sort of naturally on its own, but he'd already made at least one more heavy tackle. It never should have gotten that way. Yuck. Either way. Okay. This one, you know, it wasn't going to be Manawatu's day. The Mako were in great form. Ethan Blackadder leading the way. Holy cow, that guy's pacey for a big man. And by the time we reached the break, it was already 34 to 5 ominously. They put up the graphic saying, Tasman's biggest ever NPC home win was against Manawatu, 64 to 3 in 2019, unquote. I mean, it didn't feel that bad yet, right? Right? So it was just prior to 70 minutes that the Turbo Jacks got their second try. They found a bit more as well, but by the end, I mean, it wasn't a record, but it was a thorough smackdown. Nine tries to three 58 to 19 by the way the mpc will continue on as if the world cup doesn't even exist so lots more drama to come in this competition over the next multiple weeks okay as usual we'll sort of finish off with the top 14 this time it was oyana starting the weekend against toulouse this one it was a fun one the comms seeming to be quietly rooting for the home side i mean as as well was i to be fair um but they ended up, Oyana, they, they squandered several opportunities that could have led to points. They looked like their own worst enemy in many ways. However, it was 16-24 with the final quarter to play. Both teams not really interested in grabbing it. It was a true testament to the depth they've got at Toulouse as they showed us the same sort of methodical tactics that, you know, that we see year in and year out. And like it, it seems like it doesn't matter who they have playing. They, they just... They come out there, they work hard, they forge a small lead at halftime, and then they just grind you down and pour it on right at the end when it really matters. They don't care if they're home or away. It's a machine. It's incredible. Anyway, the clock was already two minutes in the red when Robbie Nock observed that a fight had broken out, but eh, not really. It turned out to be the same thing it always is, just grabbing and smiling and shoving and smiling. I am so ready for somebody to actually like throw a punch. Like this crap is such a waste of time, but you know, play continued despite the chaos. The home team did manage to get a chance at a losing bonus point, but they shanked it and you could just feel the letdown from the players. Tough stuff. It was 21 to 27 at the final score for that one. And then finally scores only for the next three of them. It was Rassing versus Perpignan. Cast versus Bayon and uh, Poe versus Leon with Rassing absolutely smashing Perpignan 59 to 10. Cast shutting out Bayon 37 to nil. Wow. And Poe quadrupling Leon 40 to 10. 
I think every one of those scores is a little unexpected for me. Anyway, Stade Francais versus Montpellier was the only other match I actually managed to watch this week. It's always fun to see what they do with the drink box. It's just another level. It's almost like a Terry Gilliam movie, like... Right around minute 32, it was Carbonell with a drop goal to give Montpellier the lead. 14-9 to was the lead at halftime, however, and the Parisians looked confident. However, up 21-9, to they found themselves down two players. So if their guests were going to do anything at all, this was the time. No, sadly for them, at least, I mean, uh, it they got not a jot or tittle more than that. They would lose handily. It was 24 to nine at the end of this one. Clermont versus La Rochelle and Bordeaux Beg versus Toulon. I also missed both of those. Um, but I can report it was Clermont barely edging out La Rochelle 11 to 10. I swear that might actually matter late, late in the year. I, I see it coming. There's going to be talk about this next spring. People are going to be like with that extra win. Anyway, I'm so all over this. Anyway, my Border Beagles also snuck past Toulon, 22-17, to another good one. So quickly, just after these first three rounds, we have one unbeaten team, Stade Francais, one winless team, Perpignan, while everyone else is obviously in between. Keep in mind, this will be the last round until just before Halloween as they hunker down to watch the Men's Rugby World Cup. Like all good, sensible folks will be doing everywhere worldwide. Oh, well, by that music, you will all know. It is time for this week's Diamond in the Ruck Award. This week, the award goes to Julian Gurkha. Mr. Gurkha, uh, you got, I mean, for you, a rare start for the Turbos. You absolutely made the most of it. Struggling and playing from behind almost the entirety of the match, your hard-nosed, gritty defense and deceptively slippery footwork set the stage for you to be the hero of the night. Your try at the death during the Storm Week fixture made the difference and brought your team their second consecutive win after almost two years of losing and put to bed the ghosts of the long drought at Eden Park. Your try to win it brought the Turbojacks their biggest win of the year and 100% made my week as a fan. Julian Gurkha, congratulations to you for you are this week's Diamond in the Ruck award winner. Well done, sir. Well, that of course brings us to our updates and previews. And you know what? This weekend, the FBC, I mean, it's the finals, but even I have to admit, it might be a tad overshadowed by the start of the Men's World Cup in France. But all gods know, I will be watching anyway. I mean, it's the finals. Canterbury will be hosting Auckland for the Premiership Grand Final on Friday, while the championship will be determined between the Manawatu Cyclones and Northland Women on Saturday. The NPC also 
just keeps clicking along, seemingly, seemingly oblivious to the goings-on in France. And on Friday, that means Waikato versus Wellington, while Saturday brings us Counties versus Southland, Hawks Bay versus Bay of Plenty, Auckland versus Canterbury, Taranaki versus Tasman, and Manawatu versus North Harbour, while Sunday features Otago versus Northland. Meanwhile, over in France, and you might have heard about this, We've waited four long years, but it's finally arrived. The Men's Rugby World Cup 2023 officially kicks off on Friday night with a mouthwatering matchup. The host nation welcoming the New Zealand All Blacks to Saint-Denis. If, you know, if I was to sit down right now and try to be more excited, you know what? I, I, I would fail. I couldn't do it. Where I am, we're going to have four games in a row on Saturday morning, starting at 7 a.m. Italy taking on Namibia, Ireland versus Romania, Australia versus Georgia, and England versus Argentina. Oh, man, that's going to be good. Sunday will bring us three more matches, starting with Japan versus Chile, South Africa versus Scotland. I don't want to talk about it. And finally, the fixture that is already causing massive aneurysms all throughout the nation of Wales. It's Wales versus Fiji to finish off the first weekend until Friday afternoon. I think I'm going to be laid up in bed with a full bone case of world cup fever. Well, my friends, that does it for another week. I cannot Wait for Friday when the World Cup kicks off with an absolute belter at the Stade de France. Uh, last time we had a World Cup, I was I was only you know I was super keyed up, only to discover, uh, and I don't know why I didn't see this coming, but yeah, some of these pool stage matches will be a little underwhelming and forgettable. I just I don't know this time around. I just have a feeling I'm just going to be in the whole time no matter what's happening in the matches I think a 75 to 0 win I'm still going to be watching I don't know this World Cup it's got me it's got me it 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 saw me out there and was like you we're marketing for you and I was like oh oh okay and they win anyway to all of you across the globe cheers talk to you soon and be well